0: But this morning, as we begin looking at Luke chapter 18, you have to know that the, the beginning of this chapter comes on the heels of the end of chapter 17. As a matter of fact, it is one continuous thought so that the words of Jesus in 17 continue right on seamlessly into the words of chapter 18. Now, the end of chapter 17 is a passage we're going to look at next week. We've... We flip the passages, and you'll see why next week, but it's important that we understand what's happening at the end of chapter 17, if we're going to understand the beginning of chapter 18. And so at the end of chapter 17, uh, in the, the end of the chapter, uh, Jesus began to speak to His disciples about His second coming. Which is interesting because they hadn't yet understood His first coming. They hadn't got it, though Jesus had spoken of it in a number of different ways, and they didn't understand the fact that He would die and be resurrected, though He had often spoken about it. And so here goes Jesus beginning to speak about something that they wouldn't comprehend, they couldn't wrap their minds around, and yet He begins speaking of His second coming. And you see, it's one of those things that Jesus shares that I imagine the disciples maybe years later, we were reading His words again or reflecting upon the things that He said, and they said, oh, that's what He was talking about. That's what Jesus meant when He spoke about a time between His first coming and His second coming. And so, Jesus, at the end of the chapter, he really begins to share with his disciples what it will be like and how they ought to prepare for the moment that he would leave until the time that he returned again. And none of them really imagined how long it would be between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And yet, he moves to tell them what it would be like for them and how they ought to live in light of the fact that He will one day return again. You see, that propels us into verse 1 of chapter 18, because in verse 1 of chapter 18, as Jesus continues the thoughts about His second coming, He says to His disciples this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. You see what Jesus is doing. It's sort of a, a preemptive attack. He, he knows that His disciples and the, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ for generations will struggle with losing heart, right? If He knows anything about His followers, He knows we, we, we struggle, that we can easily lose heart. The Greek word means to be faint, to be weary, or to be weak. And if there's anything we can resonate, we could say, yeah, we know what that feels like. We know as we wait for Christ's return, we know what it feels like to be faint, weary, weak, or to lose heart. It's a common feeling to all Christians who await the return of their Savior. And so Jesus shares a parable with them so they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. He is preemptively instructing them for the moments that they would be anticipating His return, the second coming. And he shares with them this parable about a persistent widow. And you know what the interesting thing is about the parable? And in the parable, the widow is the representative figure of the church. Okay? And you think, well, that's a that's kind of a pretty pathetic picture of the church, isn't it? Yes, it is. Jesus is presenting the church in this parable as a widow. Now, you think about this, it's a very fitting picture. The church is the bride of Christ, right? The the bride of Christ, and the groom has come, but now the groom has gone away for a time, and now the bride is waiting on the return of the groom. And so, in one very real sense, the church continues as a widow. And in this culture, as Jesus speaks about widows, you know what it meant for a widow. Widows were vulnerable. Widows had no way of providing for themselves. Widows had no uh, 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 ability or affinity in a culture. They had no authority. They were very helpless. And this is the depiction of the church that Christ now presents. It's very similar to when He talks about the church being a flock of, of sheep among wolves, right? Or I'm sending you into the world and the world will be against you. Here it is depicted as a widow. and Jesus shares this parable comparing the church to a widow, so that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So here's going to be the big question this morning. As we understand the parable, how does this parable move us to always be praying and not losing heart? That's the question. If we answer that, we understand the parable this morning, okay? So let's look at the parable. In verse 2, Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, as Jesus opens up this parable, I imagine the disciples were like, okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's like every judge in every city we're aware of, okay? Uh, That the judges at this moment were very corrupt, all right? What we have in Jerusalem is these various levels of civil authority beneath the emperor, these regional rulers, and there's military prefects, and then you go to the local leaders of towns, and in each town there's a judge who's appointed. But at this moment in time, most of those levels of civil authority are not for qualified individuals. They're for those who know somebody, all right, who are connected or have some money to spend to get themselves into a particular position, And so the disciples are very aware of, they've likely experienced in various towns that they've been in, judges who are corrupt, who care not for justice, but rather they care for themselves, okay? And so the disciples, as Jesus begins to share this parable, probably said, yeah, of course, Jesus. Corrupt judge, what's new? Keep going. But the depiction that Jesus gives of this judge throughout this whole parable is not just of a corrupt judge… The picture is of a judge who is like the worst of the worst, okay? Jesus says he neither feared God nor respected man, which you can probably clearly see is a violation of the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving neighbor. This judge does neither one of those things. But as the parable goes on, we get a little more insight. For instance, in verse 4, In verse 4, as Jesus is sharing the parable, He says that the man literally said to himself, because I neither fear God nor respect man. So it's a situation where the judge not only is in sin and doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man, but he knows it. He acknowledges it, and there's no shame in his acknowledgment. He's comfortable with his sin. And in verse 6, Jesus calls him the unrighteous judge, okay, we get a picture of a judge in this parable who is a very bad man. And I would suggest to you this morning, as you think, why would this guy want to be judge? There's really only one reason, then. If he doesn't care, he has no fear of God, he doesn't respect man, he has no concern for genuine justice, then it is very likely that he is only in this for himself, right? Whatever he can get out of it, and whether that's money or respect whether it's driven out of greed or lust, we have no idea, but this is really revolving around this man, okay? It is a selfish ambition that has put him in the place of judge, and now here he stands in a place of great importance. Here he stands over the people of this particular town, judging them and, quote-unquote, bringing them justice, okay? Okay? We get the second character of this parable in verse 3. It says, there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, the widow is on the other end of the spectrum, right? For as affluent as the judge was and for how much power that he had and how maybe well-respected he was in society, the widow was the very opposite of all those things. She was powerless. She lacked any affluence at all in her community. She likely had very little things. No one probably even knew her name, okay? In this culture and in this time, the widow was kind of the bottom of the bottom. She could not provide for herself. And so, she is the very opposite of the judge in the parable that Jesus shares here this morning. And it says in verse 3 that she was saying to the judge, give me justice against my adversary. And it makes it sound like she has an enemy, an arch enemy, and they're, they're battling and they're duking out. It's not exactly the image that Jesus is painting. It is more of an image of someone who is a, a opposed to her, someone who has likely taken advantage of her, who has deprived her of possession or belongings. And I don't know exactly who this is, but you could probably speculate a widow in this circumstance, there's a few different types of people who would take advantage of her. Maybe it's a, a landlord, right? Maybe it's someone who is dealing with the estate of her, her husband who had passed away, okay? Someone is dealing unjustly with her. He is her adversary, and now he has deprived her of justice, and she is bringing her case before this judge who could really care less, Okay? It doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man. Now, you think about the situation of the widow in the parable. And the widow, as she comes before the judge, the widow only has a few options. Let me try and lay out a few, a few of the only options I see. The widow could bribe the judge, okay? Okay right? But I don't think the widow has the means to bribe the judge. I think a bribe would work well with this judge, but I doubt the widow has the means. The widow could threaten the judge. I think that's another way of communicating with a judge that might work, okay? He's very selfish, but I don't think the widow has the power to threaten the judge. And so, what is the widow's last option? It's a pathetic plea. It's a crying out. It's a falling on her knees. It's a crying before him. It is pathetic, but it is persistent, okay? And that's the description of the route that the widow chooses to approach this unjust judge. And what is the result of her pleas? It says in verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual Coming, you know there are. There's a word that gets repeated twice. It's once in verse three and once in verse five. And I think it's a very important word that communicates to us exactly what the widow was doing. Okay, in verse three it gets translated. Uh, it, it says that she kept coming, and then in verse five the judge says that she's beating her, beating him down by her continual coming. It's the same word in both instances, and it's written in the the passive uh, voice and it's a participle, those two things combined together with the word that's being used is meant to communicate to us a consistent coming. A persistent coming. You could say a nagging or a bugging. Okay? Now, if you want to try and envision what this is like, this is kind of like you sitting outside on your deck or in a campground and the bug, the gnat, or the mosquito that's buzzing in your ear, right? You know the feeling. Like and you're trying to get the bug out, and you keep hitting it, and you're, you're trying to figure out where this bug is coming from, but the bug continues, and it's in your ear. That, that's a nagging, persistent, a bothering, or a begging. That's the picture of the widow here. Now, here's how I think this played out. And I, it's really a little bit comical, but beautiful at the same time. I imagine that the judge, sort of every waking moment, the widow was there, okay? So he's in his home, and he's waking up in the morning, and he's getting ready, and there she is. She's knocking on his window, judge judge, come on out. I need justice. Judge, you remember the issue that I talked to you about? Judge, come on out. And he's like, please leave me alone. And he's walking to the market, and there she is walking beside him. Judge, I need to talk to you. Judge, please just give me some time. Judge, the issue, you need to deal with my issue. And he's like, please leave me alone. And he goes back home, and he's laying down for bed, and there she is. She's knocking on his door, right? Judge, please come out. We haven't dealt with this issue. Judge, judge, please. Okay, and Jesus doesn't tell us how long this goes on? I wish he did. I wish he had said, like, for 15 years, okay? But in verse 4, it says, uh, it talks about a time, when a time had passed. Verse 4 says, for a while he refused, and literally the Greek says, for a time, for a chronos, okay? For a certain amount of time, and the depiction is that a long time passes. I think it's more than days, maybe weeks, months, As I said, I like to envision it as years, the persistent uh, widow being the mosquito or the gnat in the judge's ear, bugging him and pestering him to the point that he could not get away from her. And it says that as she pestered him and she bugged him, eventually he relented. He gave in and he delivered justice to the woman. It's a beautiful thing that happens. And as you read the passage again, it says the judge concluded, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The original Greek in that verse, it says, I will give her justice so that she will not punch me in the eye by her continual coming. Right? Yeah. It's a good one. Okay? The, the, his, the historians who talk about this, they say, You know how our culture says, man, they really gave me a black eye. And we don't mean that like somebody actually punched us in the face. We mean like they really, they really hurt us, okay? That's the picture of what the judge is saying, okay? He gave in to her because by her continual coming, she was giving him a black eye. Now, what exactly he's referring to, how that hurt him, we don't know exactly, but I can imagine as a selfish judge, that the continual uh, nagging and pestering of the widow, it probably began to tarnish his public reputation. I could imagine that would be the case. As a man who is selfish and only cares about himself, I like to envision a scenario where the judge was saying, come on lady, leave me alone. People are beginning to notice that I'm doing nothing for you. Okay? Stop bothering me. People are beginning to ask questions. They're going maybe even to the people above my head. This is threatening my livelihood, my well-being. And so he gave in to her because of her consistent pestering. She was giving him a black eye by her continual coming. As we think about this parable and the meaning of this parable, again, we have to continue to ask the question. What then does this parable have to do with always praying and not losing heart, okay? How do we connect the two? And let me just tell you this. If you're going to understand this parable, here's one of the things you have to understand about Jesus. Sometimes Jesus speaks, and he uses a pattern of speaking. He does it here, and here's what I would call it. It's a how much more so pattern of speaking, okay? So if you're taking notes, write that down. How much more so? Do you remember any of the times when Jesus used the phrase, how much more so? Okay, or how much more? I'll give you a few examples just from the Gospel of Luke. The ravens. You remember the ravens, right? Okay, if God feeds the ravens, how much more so does he care about you than the ravens? Okay, you remember that? Or the lilies. You remember the lilies? God clothes the lilies of the field. He clothes them in the splendor, greater splendor than even Solomon had, right? And if God clothes the lilies of the field, how much more so will he provide for you? Or what about the the evil parents who know how to give good things to their children? You remember that one? If you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more so will your Father in heaven give good things to you? See, in in each of those circumstances, what, what is Jesus doing? Why is he asking an absurd question? He's trying to evoke a response from his readers. As we answer those questions, you know what we say? We say, no, duh. Of course what an absurd question are we more valuable than the ravens of of course we are will god clothe us if he clothes the the, the lilies of the field does he care more about us than he cares about flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow of course he does if we who are evil know how to give good things to our children won't our good father in heaven give us good things of course he will What an absurd question. It's an absurdity of incongruity. One thing is not like the other. The comparison that Jesus is making is a contrast. These two things have nothing in common, and it is exactly what Jesus is doing in this parable. We are meant to look at this parable and say, well, how much more so will our God give us justice, right? Think about what Jesus says in verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, okay? Reflect on the words of the unrighteous judge. And then after that, you literally could insert the words, how much more? How much more will God give justice to His elect who cried to Him day and night? How much more will He delay long over them? How much more will He give justice to them speedily? It is the contrast between the unrighteous judge and the good father, and if the unrighteous judge will give justice to the pestering widow, how much more will our God give us justice? You see, I I think that's an important contrast for us to make. We have to say it out loud because we often read this parable in a different way. We must say out loud, our God is not like the unrighteous judge. Okay? Our God is not like the unrighteous judge because often we pray as if our God is like the unrighteous judge. Often we pray that if we say it enough or if we mean it enough or if we say it in such a way that it is beautiful and pleasing to God, then He will move on our behalf. If we just pester Him enough, He will give us the thing we want, okay? Like the widow before the unrighteous judge. But that's not our God. Jesus is contrasting him to the unrighteous judge. He's not comparing him. So please hear this as we think about the prayer that Jesus describes. We do not pray with persistence because we think the quality of our prayer is connected to the quantity of our words, okay? God doesn't care about empty rote repetition. If you repeat it a hundred times or you say it once, it's not more moving to God, okay? Okay? We do not pray with persistence because we think that God's heart needs to be changed. Okay? Our God is perfect. He is unchanging. His ways are unalterable. So we do not pray because we think God's heart needs to be changed. We do not pray with persistence because we think that God needs to be informed or roused. As if to say, God, listen, let me just describe the situation to you and if you get it, then you'll do something. Okay? Let me just tell you what's going on And I think once you get the details, God, then you'll move, okay? That's not why we pray with persistence. We do not pray with persistence because we think that God will be moved by our commitment and our determination. As if God will look at us and say, well, you're pretty zealous, much more zealous than the next person, so I'm going to give you the things you're asking for, okay? That's not why we pray with persistence. That's the story of the unrighteous judge. It is not the story of our God. So hear me, this parable is not a parable about our feverish or frantic commitment to prayer. It is not a parable where we say, man, if we could just be like the widow, if we just nag enough, then God will hear us. And yet I think often when we read this parable, that's exactly what we think. We think if we could just take a lesson from the widow, then what is this parable about? Again, what is the application that Jesus shares here, it's very simple. How much more justice will our God give us than the unrighteous judge, okay? The message of Jesus as he speaks in this parable is that when we pray, we pray as those who know that our God gives justice. Who know that our God is and that our God does. Not as those who wonder if our God will. Not as those who are seeking to move God to be just and wondering if he actually will be just. See, this parable is a comparison, a contrast between God and the judge and the way that we might approach God versus the way that we might approach the unrighteous judge. Let me tell you, it's the same thing that happens in 1 Kings chapter 18, okay? In 1 Kings 18, there's Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember this, right? And the public question is, well, whose God is real? Whose God will answer your prayer? whose god will move on your behalf. And you remember what the prophets of Baal did? They get the first attempt, right? And they go before the altar and 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 here's the competition. Whichever god is going to bring down fire from heaven and burn up this offering, that's the real god, right? And so the prophets of Baal, what do they do, man? They are frantic and they're frenzied. There's a chaos in their prayer, and they're like the widows, nagging and persistent, and they're crying out for their God, and they're yelling, and they're hooting and hollering, and when their God doesn't answer, they begin cutting themselves and pouring their blood out on the altar, and they're beating themselves, and they're just wondering if their God's going to answer them. And everything that they're doing is with the question, well, okay, I wonder if he's going to do something. I wonder if he's going to work on our behalf. I wonder if he's actually going to hear us, and he doesn't. Of course, he's a dead God. But you remember the prophets of Baal and compare them to the way that Elijah approaches, right? You remember he approaches the altar calmly. And after water has been poured on the altar and trenches have been dug around it and filled with water, he approaches the altar calmly and he begins praying. And what does he say? Let it be known in all the earth. And then he begins talking about his God. Let it be known in all the earth. You see, Elijah approached the situation with quiet confidence, knowing that as he prayed that his God is, and his God will, and his God would answer his prayer. And I knew Elijah probably didn't know exactly how God would answer the prayer, but nonetheless, he knew with confidence that God would do, as he says here in verse 7, that he will give justice to his elect who cry day and night. Elijah prayed knowing that God would, and it gave him a confidence, a boldness, a courage to pray knowing that God would work on his behalf. You see, that's what Christ is exhorting His hearers to in this passage. The type of prayer that Jesus is speaking about is an eschatological prayer, okay? Eschatological, that means with a view of the end in mind, all right? Jesus is exhorting them, I have come and I am leaving and one day I will return and your prayer ought to have my return in mind. The way you pray ought to be knowing that one day I will return and the justice that I've purchased on the cross will one day be realized fully in your lives and you will truly experience that. Okay? And so the exhortation is for Christians to pray and not lose heart. You see... If we prayed in this way, we would not lose heart, right? If we prayed in this way, we would not grow faint and weary. If we prayed like Elijah, like knowing, yeah, God will, He does, He has, we would not grow faint and lose heart. We would not grow weary. That's why this morning we confessed the Heidelberg Catechism 126. I don't know if you've ever heard that question. The last question that comes up in the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the elders brought it up in the session meeting this past week, and I thought, how fitting. That question in the Heidelberg Catechism says, what does amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. You get the picture? It's the conclusion to a prayer that means there's even a tumult in my heart. There's a wondering in my heart, yet amen is the acknowledgement that as I say this, I know that God has heard and has already acted on my behalf. It is the acknowledgement that it is certain, it is true, it will be done. Now let me briefly, just a minute or two, let me explain then what this means for us, okay? I think that all of us could take and we can make a list of all the injustices that have been uh, perpetrated against us, okay? You could do that, and that might even be a good exercise for you. Make a list, okay? Here are all the things. And there's probably things on your list that are going to be similar to others and different than others, okay? But you think about all the injustices. This could include the loss of a dear loved one, okay? That is an eternal injustice, right? that is brought by death and sin in the world that is not meant to be, okay? You could think of the ways that people have offended you, have taken advantage of you, have sinned against you, the ways that those things haven't been restored, where justice hasn't been pursued. Okay, if you make a list of those things, let me ask you a question then. Think of those things in your mind, if you haven't written them down yet. How would your prayer change about those things if you prayed the way that Jesus prescribed in this parable? You see, you you think about those lists, and I can almost guarantee most of us are thinking, I've prayed about those things, and I haven't haven't experienced justice. The hole hasn't been filled. The, The wrong hasn't been righted. Nothing has been restored. I prayed fervently for years, and nothing happened. And doesn't Jesus say in this parable that I tell you He will give justice to them speedily? I haven't experienced that. See, the word in verse 8, speedily, it is a speedily that means suddenly. He will give justice to them suddenly, right? The blink of an eye. The snapping of a finger, he will give justice to them. And here's what I want you to know. If If you have a list of injustices that have been offended against you, we need to pray understanding that one day those wrongs will be righted. Those things will be restored. And I tell you the truth, I don't know how all of those wrongs will be righted. I don't know what that will be like, but I know what it will feel like, okay? The holes will be filled. The voids will be made whole. The brokenness will be brought back together. We will one day stand in the presence of our Creator with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we will be fully made whole, and there will be no doubt in our minds, okay? I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, that will be true of us. And so we are exhorted by our Lord and Savior to pray knowing that that is the case, that God gives justice to those He loves. You see, the word He uses in verse 7, He gives justice to His elect. If God has loved us since before the foundation of the earth, if He has chosen us in love, if He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, if He has redeemed for Himself a people, if He has taken us out of darkness into light, if He is preparing a place for us, if He has eternally secured us, then will He not give more justice than the unrighteous judge? Then will He not hear the cries of His people and answer them in prayer suddenly at the return of our Lord and Savior? Will He not make all wrongs right? And so brothers and sisters, a very simple encouragement, Let us then not lose heart, but let us pray knowing that our God will give justice to his children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this parable that is only found in the Gospel of Luke. We thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ cared so greatly for us that He not only left us these exhortations and encouragements, His his own Word, but He left us His Spirit. After laying down His own life, paying the penalty for our sin, He left us a helper, God who dwells in us. And so we pray, Father, that Your Spirit would move in our hearts, that we would not grow faint or weary, that we would not lose heart, that our faith would grow and our confidence in You would grow and our courage and boldness in You would grow. And that we would always be praying with the end in mind. That we could not pray so much about if God will give justice, but we could pray about when. God gives justice. And we can pray not about if God hears us and if our Father cares, but we can pray to our God who hears and cares. Would that, Lord God, shape the way we pray? Would it shape the way we live? Would it shape the way that we deal with trials and suffering? Would it shape the way we deal with joys and rejoicing? We thank you, our Father. We ask for the glory of you, the glory of your Son, by the work of your Spirit, that you would continue to move among your people this morning and forevermore. In your name we pray, amen.